The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. This morning we'll give attention to verses 28 through 36 of Luke 9. Luke records these words. He says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. I'm not sure if you've been lately to a movie theater to see a movie. Perhaps you've already made it out to see the new Top Gun movie. Anybody made it out to see that one yet? You would think that somebody assigned to naval aviation would have already done that, but I have not. We'll do it in short order. But if you've seen a movie anytime recently, or frankly any time in your life, you know that the experience is pretty much the same at the beginning. You go to the movie theater, you find your seat, you get your popcorn if you're going to do that, and, and before the movie starts, there's a good 15 minutes of what? Of previews, right? You, you sit there before the, the actual film begins, and you see small clips of other films that are coming soon, or maybe coming far and uh, you, you, you get these little tiny clips. They're not long, just a couple of minutes. And they're just previews. They're, they, they're, they're little short pieces of the movie where you're introduced at least to a, a little bit of the film, a little bit about it. You, you learn who's in it. You learn maybe just a taste of what the plot is like. And you maybe get a, a hint of what the action is going to be in the film. There's just enough there sort of to, to pique your interest. But you, you never get the spoilers. You never see where it's actually going. You never get the, the full twists and the turns and the, the whole picture. The producers are hoping that you'll, you'll see just enough in the preview you know, to, to want to go see the real film when it eventually comes out. In some ways, to today's passage that we look at in this event in the lives of Peter, James, and John is somewhat of a, of a preview, uh, a, a glimpse into the future, a preview of some things that are to come. Jesus is going to take them up onto a mountain and he's going to give them a, a small taste of eternal glory. They're going to, if you will, uh, get a glimpse into the eternal kingdom, but just a glimpse. They'll see just a, a tiny bit of it, just enough to blow their minds and just enough to pique their interest, but not enough to, to capture the full story and all that comes along with what the eternal kingdom looks like and will be like. Only enough to whet their appetite. Only enough to accomplish what Jesus sets out to accomplish on this particular day. So in some sense, what we're seeing is a a preview of things to come. But while it is a preview of the future, it's also, in the same time, sort of a throwback to the past. It's going to, as we look at it together, you'll see this tied together both the Old Testament and the eternal kingdom in the future. It's going to tie those two things together, and it's going to point them both to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of both. 
the past and the future. It's a one-time deal. There is, there's nothing like this anywhere else in the New Testament. It happens here, and it happens in the presence of these three apostles, and no one else sees anything like it. We'll all see something like it one day if we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. What they saw as a preview, we'll see the full film. And we'll experience the Lord himself. That hope who has a name. But before we sort of dive into this and, and, and sort of get a, a new glimpse, I, I think, of who Christ really is, we need to rewind the tape a bit and go back to verse 27 of, of the previous chapter. I know you think I skipped it last week because it's hard and I probably am not going to come back to it, but we don't skip the hard things, do we? We, we, we do when we go through the text. We, we get them all. So I need to rewind and get that. But it relates to today's text, I think, much better than it does to last week. So verse 27 of Luke chapter 9, Jesus says these words. But I tell you truly... There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He wraps up this, this speech that he's giving them about dying to themselves and taking up their cross and following after him. And at the end of that, he says this, this makes this statement, which is, is, is veiled in, in some bit of confusion. It's been hotly debated throughout the centuries. What exactly is Jesus talking about here? To what is he referring we won't spend a whole lot of time debating it. Uh, the answer to the question of what is Jesus talking about here, the answer is crystal clear to me. Nobody knows what he's talking about right here, specifically, enough to be dogmatic about it. There are people who suggest all sorts of things. There are some who say he's talking about the resurrection and the ascension that is going to come that some of them will witness. Others would argue that what he's talking about here is Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the launch of the New Testament church, that, that this is the, the thing to which he's referring. Others would say he's talking about the spread of the church itself, the, the spreading of the church and the advancing of the kingdom of God in the hearts of those who believe. There are others who would argue vehemently that no, it's not any of those things. What it really is talking about is AD 70 and the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And then finally there are those who say, no, what he's really talking about here is the transfiguration, the event that we look at this morning. Well, there are some things we can't say for sure that are really clear from what Jesus says. He's talking about an event that some of the apostles will see, but not all of them. So for it to qualify, it has to be an event that only some of them see and not all of them see. And he also makes very clear that they're going to see it before they die. So this is not something that's coming down the road. It's something that happens in their lifetime. So you can uh, go down that rabbit hole theologically on your own and have fun. And wherever you land, I'll celebrate wherever that is. For me, it's, it's, it, it takes me to the, the passage we look at this morning, the transfiguration. I think that's what Jesus is speaking of here. It makes the most sense to me. It is the most prominent event in close proximity to what he says on this particular occasion. It is an event that only three of them witnessed, not all of them. It certainly happened in their lifetime. And in a very clear and real sense, these three apostles see behind the veil, if you will, and they get a glimpse into the eternal kingdom, complete with two long-dead saints who show up with glorified heavenly bodies nonetheless. So I think what Jesus is talking about here in verse 27 is what he's about to do just uh, six to eight days later here at the Mount of Transfiguration. So that's enough about that. You figured out beyond that. That's all I can tell you. Verse 28 gives us a bit of context here, and we need this. Uh, Luke says about eight days after these things, or these sayings, he, he took with him Peter, James, and John, uh, and they went up on a mountain to pray. So the broader context in which we find this passage is there's conversation been going on about the identity of Christ. We've been tracking that for some time now. We've been seeing this on and on and on. Most, most recently, back in verses 18 and 19, when Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them the question, who do the crowds say that I am? And they reply to him, well, John, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And then he turns to them and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. 
Jesus has been progressively revealing himself to his disciples, showing them over and over new layers of who he is, trying to help them understand that he is, in fact, the eternal son of God who's come to redeem men. And so he has this conversation with them, and after that, he seems to turn his attention to the crowd and, and speak to them about the things that we talked about last week. And, and beyond that, we don't know what happens for the next six days. Luke doesn't record it. The other gospel writers don't give us a clear picture of what happens over the next six days. But on the seventh day, after he says these things, he, he takes his self-revelation to the apostles to a whole new level, to an absolutely whole new level. He initiates a leadership retreat with three of his apostles, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up, we're told by Luke, onto a mountain to pray, and they have no idea what's about to happen. They're just walking up the mountain. I just kind of picture in my mind these guys just sort of, Jesus wants to go up on the mountain to pray. Sure, let's go up on the mountain to pray. And they're bebopping up the mountain, feeling special that Jesus called them out, and everybody else got left behind, but they get to go with Jesus up to the mountain to pray. And it's a normal day, and it's a normal mountain, and it's a normal Jesus, and this is a normal activity. There's nothing that's gonna tip their hand that they're about to have a life-changing experience on top of this mountain. Now, what mountain is this? Well, again, it's hard to say. It's either Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon. Those tend to be the most common uh, sort of mountains that are identified as this location. If you were to go there today to Jerusalem, you would find, or to the area of Israel, you would find the traditional site is Mount Tabor. If you can see it on the map, bottom left or sort of middle bottom there, Mount Tabor is down there below the Sea of Galilee. Mount Hermon is further north, top right of your screen, uh, not far from, it's really located quite near Caesarea Philippi, which is the location that Jesus was at when he said the things just previous to this. So it makes more sense to me that Mount Hermon was probably the place. It's also a mountain that, as you can see with your Superman eyesight, that is 9,232 feet high, as opposed to Mount Tabor, which is only 1,800 feet in elevation. So uh, it seems like, to me, he went to the taller mountain that was closer to where they are. But they had six or seven days, they could have walked south, who knows. Either way, they went on the mountain, and they go up on the mountain to have this prayer retreat with Jesus. And we're told in verse 39 that the disciples dutifully fall asleep. Now Peter and those who were with him, verse 32, were heavy with sleep. Heavy with sleep. You don't get that really great in the English Standard Version. The contemporary English Version gives it to us a little more plain. Peter and the other two disciples had been what? They'd been sound asleep, and they're out cold, like out cold, out cold. Now, I, I'm sure, you know, that you can identify with the scene, can't you? you? Go up on the mountain with all the right intentions to pray with Jesus, and Jesus is praying, and they're praying, and the next minute, they're asleep. Now, I'm sure you, as dutiful Christian people who love coming to the Lord's house on the Lord's day, don't, you, you know nothing of falling asleep at inopportune times, right? You know nothing of that. The, the Greek verb here is, a, is to, to bore you with something uh, uh, language-related is the perfect passive participle, which simply tells us that these guys are falling asleep involuntarily. They're, they're getting carried away by sleep, if you will. They didn't go there to, with the intention of taking a nap, but they just are there praying and they couldn't keep their eyes open. They, the sleep, if you will, overcame them. Now this will no doubt happen to some of you in this very room this morning. I have no question about it. I stand up here every week and I know this to be a fact. You've come here this morning with the very best of intentions, right? You've come here, you love Jesus, you truly wanted to be with God's people in this place on this day. Thus far, you've made it through all the songs, you've made it through the scripture reading, you've made it through a couple of prayers. But now you're sitting and you're doing something that you don't do in any other time in your life. You're sitting in a chair, facing forward, looking at a guy on a stage and listening to him talk for 45 minutes ish, right? And what inevitably happens to some of you, 
to me when I'm in your place, is you're very interested. But then all of a sudden, sleep overtakes you, right? You're in, you're tuned in, you're, you're ready to go, you're listening, you're paying attention. And then all of a sudden, your eyelids just get heavy, right? And you're fighting it. And some of you are good fighters, by the way. You fight it for a while, you're very interested. And this morning, you'll be very interested somewhere around verse 30, 31. And then you'll fight it, and, and, and you'll fight it, and the head bob thing starts to happen. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know, you fight it, and you do this number here. And occasionally, when you do this number here, I'm looking at you, and you see me, and I see you. And it's this really awkward moment where you're humiliated and embarrassed, and I'm trying not to laugh out loud. We've all had this experience, haven't we? Let's just talk about it for a moment. Or I don't see you. And, and you have lunch later on, and you say, well, you know, the sermon was interesting this morning, but, you know, I don't, why did he skip verses 32 through 34? Which your, your wife will tell you. Uh, he didn't skip it. You were sound asleep for those verses. You understand what it is, right? To be overcome with sleep. To have all the right intentions, but to just not be able to fight it anymore. That's where these men were. They were praying. Let's, let me ask you, just, has this ever happened to you? Have you ever been praying and you fell asleep? Come on, just nod your head with me if that's ever happened to you. Okay, good. I feel much better. I don't feel alone this morning. We have a good group of people who can identify with one another. That's what these men did. They were praying. And the next minute they were sound asleep. But what we're told in the text is when they wake up, the sight that they witness is absolutely mind-blowing. It is incredible. It is, a, it is a sight that they see that literally defies human language. As he was praying, we're told in verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Now understand as Luke writes this, and if you were to read Matthew and Mark's account of this, you'd find the same thing. These men are, are trying to use the language that they have to describe to you something for which there are no words. Something that is so marvelous, something that is so majestic, something that is so incredible, there is no analogy like it. There is nothing that you can say that what I'm seeing is like this thing over here because there is nothing that's like what they saw. What they saw was divine. What they saw was supernatural. And they're doing their best with the words and the things that they know to be able to explain to us what they saw. But understand that there's no language that can capture the beauty and the majesty and the glory of what they witnessed on top of this mountain in seeing Christ this way. One minute they're asleep, the next minute they're awakened, and they look up, and all of a sudden they realize immediately Jesus is not the same. He's not the same. He doesn't look the same as, when, as he did when they nodded off. Luke says, the appearance of his face was altered. Matthew and Mark say he was transfigured before them. Jesus was changed in a very dramatic and noticeable sort of a way. Something about his face was remarkably different. Something about his, his clothing and his, the, the radiance of his appearance was completely different. And yet he was still quite recognizable. What in the world is going on? What are these men witnessing? What they're seeing is the Son of God pulling back the curtain, if you will, of his flesh and revealing to them his eternal glory. Now we know, you and I know, from the Christmas story that Jesus is God in human flesh. That he is God and he is man. That what happened when Christ was born of Mary is that, he, that the divine Son of God took on human flesh and he became a man. And in taking on human flesh, his, the, 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 the glory of his divinity was veiled or hidden, if you will, inside of his humanity. Or to put it plainly, after the incarnation, he does not appear as he has always appeared before and as he will one day appear again. And he looked 
like a man, but he was much more than a man. And here on this mountain, it's as though Jesus in some supernatural way is able to pull back the curtain of flesh that is veiling his deity, and he gives them a glimpse of his divine glory. And they see him like they've never seen him before. On the surface, he looked just like a man, but he was so much more than that. There was a, a hidden reality that they had not comprehended in any sort of a way. What they were seeing wasn't all there was to see. There was more behind the curtain. You recall the, the movie The Wizard of Oz? It's the classic film, right? You've seen it probably in Technicolor. And you remember the great Oz in The Wizard of Oz. He presented himself as this godlike figure who, 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 you know, had all these, you know, 1970s pyrotechnics and stuff going on, who made all these proclamations and ruled the, the land of Oz. But as the film goes on, you find out that Oz, the great and glorious, is really, when the curtain is pulled back, just what? He's just a man. What you saw wasn't the reality. It, it, it was, it was, there was much more going on than what you could see. In fact, when you pulled the curtain back, what you saw was a tremendous disappointment. He was quite ordinary, in fact. It's kind of the same thing when you're you know, moving through your social media feed and, and one of the, these eternal stories that keeps coming up pops up to, to make you click on it to see what celebrities look like without their makeup. Right? Have you seen those? Do they pop up in your feed? You're like, here is Celebrity X, and look at how beautiful Celebrity X is, and here is Celebrity X without makeup, and you go, ooh, reality is not the same as the fantasy. Those people, we make ourselves out to be something better than what we actually are, and reality is usually quite disappointing compared to what we project for other people. Jesus here shows us that he is the exact opposite of how people are. Jesus is far more glorious than what anybody could have ever seen on the surface if they had encountered him in his life. When he pulls back the veil, it isn't a disappointment. When he pulls back the veil, it is mind-boggling to see who he really is. Really, when you read through this passage, you understand what, what, what Paul writes in Philippians when he says that, that the Son of God humbled himself in taking on flesh. When Christ was incarnated, he, he, he veils his glorious appearance. He, he takes on ordinary human flesh. But he's so much more. So much more than could be seen on the surface. And on this mountain, he rips back the curtain for a moment, and he shows these three men a glimpse of who he really is in all of its dazzling brilliance. We're told his clothes became dazzling white, Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Mark says it this, he says his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. I don't know what happens in your brain when you try to imagine what that looked like, but it was some sort of a glorious and brilliant white that is whiter than any white that could be seen. It is whiter than Clorox can make anything. It is a white that is unlike any bright, brilliant white that we can experience. It's supernatural. Oh, so what's the deal with this? Well, the Bible describes God's appearance quite frequently in terms of light. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you're very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Say this part with me. Covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 4 the prophet writes of God his his brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power again a description of God with with brightness and light and light flashing from his hand Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 60 verse 19 looks forward to the eternal kingdom and he says this about the eternal kingdom the sun shall be no more your light by day nor for brightness shall the moon give you light but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory 
Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And we could go on and on with the Old Testament describing God's appearance in terms of the brightness of light. And so here in Jesus pulling back the curtain and revealing himself this way, we are seeing God the Son radiating the majestic glory of God the Father and showing himself to be one and the same. In a sense, this is, for Christ, a, a blast from the past. What, what Peter, James, and John are seeing here is, is something that Christ previously was for a very long time. We know this from John chapter 17, verse 5, in his high priestly prayer, when he's praying to God the Father, and he says to him, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that what? I had with you before the world existed. That here you have the, 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 the pre-existent Son of God who existed in eternity past with God the Father as a unified Godhead and, and he, he existed in eternal, brilliant, bright, majestic glory. All of that was veiled in his humanity. And what we're seeing here, at least Peter, James, and John, is a glimpse of what Christ was prior to the Incarnation. But it's also a flash into the future of what he's going to reveal himself to be there as well. The Apostle John would later be given a vision of, of the Lord and he would see Christ in his exalted state and in the mix. The Lord would give him the contents of the book of Revelation. But here's how he describes him in that vision. He says, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Have you ever looked at the sun in its fullness on a bright sunny day? It's so bright and glorious you can't look at it for long. You have to turn your eyes. It's the emanation of the glory of Almighty God. And that's what these men were getting a glimpse of on the top of this mountain. Jesus is so much more than these men understood up to this point. He is not just a man. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a human king or a good teacher. He is the eternal glorious God of everything. And so if you want a statement, you can just say this. Jesus Christ is eternal God. That's what we find here. He is none other than eternal God in all of his majestic glory. But that's not all that they see. Verses 31, 30 and 31 tell us this. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. As if waking up in your foggy, just napping state and seeing the radiance of the glory of Christ in your face wasn't enough, two dead men appear. And they're having a conversation with Jesus. We're told they're Moses and Elijah, and we're told they both appeared in glory. In other words, they both had heavenly bodies. They did not have ordinary human bodies like they did before they died. They have exalted and glorified bodies, yet they are recognizable, and they are having intelligent conversation with Jesus. They had been in the presence of God since they departed the earth, and they would have known God the Son prior to his incarnation. They would have been, at least to some degree, acquainted with his plan of redemption. And so here, on top of the mountain, they show up, and there's a conversation that ensues about this particular topic. And it's particularly fascinating when people were just recently asking uh, you know, talking about who Jesus is. Who do people say that I am? Some say Elijah, and some say one of the prophets. And here we have Moses and Elijah showing up on the, on the, uh, at the same time Jesus is there on top of the mountain as a clear and definitive statement that Jesus is not Elijah and he is not Moses. He's someone much more than either of them or both together. Now, how did the apostles know who these men were? They've been dead for a very long time. Moses, 1,400 years or, or so. Elijah, somewhere around 900 years. 
It's not like they had family photos on the wall. Here's your great-great-grandfather Moses. How did they know who these men were? Well, we can only speculate that. Maybe there was an introduction. Maybe they just, the nature of the conversation revealed who they were. I don't know how they knew, but they knew who it was. It was Moses and it was Elijah. So what's the significance of this? What, why, why, why these two and not others? Well, there are several things that we could say about that. We could say both of these men had, in their lifetime, had some very unique mountaintop experiences. Did they not? Moses on Mount Sinai received the law of the Lord, the Ten Commandments. Do you recall all of that in the book of Exodus? So he encountered the Lord on a mountain and had a remarkable experience. Elijah also had a remarkable experience on top of Mount Carmel. Do you remember where he encountered the, the, uh, the false prophets, right, of Baal in the days of Jezebel and her husband? But these were two of the most revered men in all of Israel's history, Moses and Elijah. Two of the most revered men. You couldn't find two more. Like if you had gone through the archives of history and you'd lined up everybody from Israel's history and said, we need, okay, uh, to, to verify this thing on the, on the count of two or three witnesses, we need two guys to go down and verify this thing. You couldn't have picked two more trusted witnesses than Moses and Elijah to send for that purpose. But more significant than any of that, when we see these two men there, Moses and Elijah, together, they represent the whole of the Old Testament. The whole of the Old Testament. Each man represents one of the two great divisions of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law. He is the great lawgiver. And Elijah represents the prophets. And the phrase, the law and the prophets, really was a, a phrase that had come to colloquial use, if you will, as a way of referring to the whole of the Old Testament. Jesus refers to it this way in Matthew 5, 17. He said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to, to fulfill them. He's saying, I, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. Everything that's in the Old Testament points to me. And the presence of these two men... Elijah and Moses is very, very significant. It is a, a visible affirmation that Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament. And all of the Old Testament teaches about the Messiah who was to come, both in the law and in the prophets, is fulfilled in this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if the, the whole of the Old Testament showed up in person to validate the identity of the Lord. a visible affirmation that Jesus is the one to whom they point. The Old Testament law really in totality points to Christ. You could take something as simple as the sacrificial law and you could read through all of the things related to the sacrificial law and all of the, the lambs that are slain and all the other animals that are slain their blood poured out over and over and over and over millions and millions and millions of them over the centuries none of which could actually you know, forgive people's sins or, or, or remit their sins. But they all just pointed to someone else, Jesus Christ, the ultimate Lamb of God, the book of Hebrews tells us, who would once and for all shed his blood for the sins of his people. It all points to Christ, the law does. Everything contained in the, in the prophets as well speaks to one who would come, who would fulfill all of the prophecies related to the Messiah, the coming one, the future Lamb of God who would die for the sins of his people. Over and over the prophets speak of this. You could just dive into Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a very familiar Old Testament prophecy, and you would see Isaiah saying, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, and shall call his name what? Emmanuel. The prophets spoke over and over of this one who would come. They tell us all these things about him. The prophetic psalms over and over and over speak to 
the Messiah who would come. They tell us he would be rejected by his own. They tell us he'd be declared the son of God in power. They tell us he would be declared a king. They tell us he would be praised by little children, that he would be betrayed and that he would be arrested and falsely accused. They tell us that he'd be mocked and that he would be ridiculed, that his hands and his feet would be pierced. He'd be forsaken by God and he would rise from the dead. All of that in the prophetic Psalms and much more in the words of the prophets. And all of that is wrapped up in the presence of Elijah on top of this mountain. It is the law and the prophets all pointing to the Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of both. All of the Old Testament is fulfilled in him. Now Moses and Elijah didn't show up just to have a, 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 a peekaboo. They have a conversation. What's the nature of their conversation? Well, Luke tells us they were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure, the word that the ESV translates departure, is actually the word exodus in Greek. Of course, Moses knows a little something about exodus, doesn't he? He knows about leading God's people out of slavery to Egypt into a promised land. And they're talking to Jesus about his exodus his exodus, his, his leading of the people of God out of slavery to their sin and into the eternal promised land. It's what his departure is here. It's a clear reference to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It says that it's going to be accomplished at Jerusalem, and we know for sure that that's exactly how the plan unfolded. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to die on a Roman cross. He's going to be buried in a borrowed tomb, and he's going to be raised three days later. This is the nature of their conversation. Elijah and Moses are conversing with the Lord Jesus about what he's about to do, about what's to take place in his, in his arrest and in his, uh, his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection and ascension. I'm sure that they had a thousand questions and they're interacting with him based on what they know of the Old Testament. And it's all about to unfold. And Peter, James, and John <clears throat> are overhearing this conversation. Moses and Elijah are very familiar with God's redemptive plan. <clears throat> it was a topic of great interest to them. It was a topic of great interest to them because their ministries pointed toward it, but it was a topic of great interest to them because it was personal. The Son of God was going to die in their place too. He was going to die for their sin too. They needed the same redemption you need and I need. So what's the point of this? Well, the point of this is not only is Jesus eternal God, but we're, we're told here in this piece of the story that Jesus is much more than that. He's not, he's not just a man. He is eternal God. But beyond that, he's infinitely greater than Moses. He's infinitely greater than Elijah. He is, in fact, the promised one, the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament. That's who Jesus is. The Jewish people today are fools for looking for someone else to come. There is no one else who's going to come. The only one to come is the one who's already come, the Lord Jesus. We're not told how long this event took place or how long it lasted. I suspect it wasn't a really long time. However long it happened, however long it took place, when it came time for it to end, there was one apostle who was not ready for it to end, Peter. In classic Peter fashion, he speaks up. And we all smile just a little when we read this, don't we? Hey, Master, I've got a wonderful idea. Don't let these guys leave. Let's all hang out here on top of the mountain for a little while. We can, we'll, we'll get together, we can build some tents, and one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, and, and we'll just stay up here with the glorified dead guys, because I want to hear more of this, and I want to see more of this. Let's keep this thing going. Got all sorts of questions. Let's just extend the retreat. And I love that Luke includes this. He says that Peter was not knowing what he had said. Peter had no idea what he was talking about. Peter's mouth is moving and words are coming out, but he hasn't got any idea what he's talking about. 
I had no idea. He's talking, but he's clueless. You gotta love Peter, right? Regularly opening his mouth and saying the wrong things. Regularly regarding his mouth, ready, fire, aim, right? Talks when he has no idea what he's talking about. Now we all do this from time to time, right? We all do this from time to time. Don't look at your spouse right now. We do this from time to time. Some of us are professionals at it, better than others. There are some people who make a living talking about things they don't know anything about. You just turn on the TV and pretty much everybody you see, they're paid to talk about things they have no idea what they're talking about. You flip the channel to news talk. They're all talking. That's all they do all day is talk. And they're talking about this and talking about that and talking about this person and that person and Russia and Ukraine and Putin and the president and these people and that. They have no idea what they're talking about, most of them. They're just talking because somebody pays them to stare at a camera and talk. You just say, well, I'm sick of that. You flip it over to ESPN. It's the same thing. More people, it's just sports instead of politics. They don't know what they're talking about either. It paid, though, to talk about things when they don't know what they're talking about. They used to get sick of that. You just flip over to the weather channel. Well, the weatherman doesn't know either. He's about to be the worst of them all. I, I think sometimes on the weather, they just put up, they just like have a, a rotation of pictures they put up there just in rotation. It doesn't relate to anything that's actually happening. It's going to be 50% chance of rain tomorrow. Okay good it rains all day long you're like what was that guy doing he didn't know what he was talking about how does he keep his job he doesn't have to know what he's talking about he just has to talk that's all Peter's doing that right now he's talking he doesn't know what he's talking about you know my I remember when I was a kid my mom used to tell me probably what your mom told you um, when you would say something unkind she would say something like if you don't have something nice to say then don't say anything at all right I've probably uttered those words to my own son at some point in his life. But I think we should, that's the mom rule. I think we should create the Peter rule, shouldn't we? If you don't know what you're talking about, don't say anything at all. Don't you think that's a good rule? I think we would all be blessed and better for that. Anyway, I, you know, struggle to apply it to myself as much as anyone else. Well, Peter, that's what he's doing. He's talking, he doesn't know what he's talking about. What he's saying here is actually selfish, it's arrogant, it's short-sighted, it's foolish. It's a lot of other words we could use. It's foolish and arrogant, really at a base level. He's seeing Jesus in all of his divine glory, and he decides he wants to make a suggestion. Here's a rule of thumb. When you see God, he probably doesn't need your advice on what to do next. Peter doesn't stop to think of that. Hey, I, I, God, I know you've got a plan here, but I think maybe you should hear my plan. I don't think you've thought of all the options here. Don't, don't have the guys go back. I got a better suggestion. Let's just all make tents and we have a you know, camp out here on the mountain for a while. It's selfish at its base too, isn't it? He's been privy to something wonderful and something marvelous and something extraordinary and nobody else is seeing this and he's like, forget everybody else. I'm just going to Let's just hang out right here. I don't want this to end. Tell him I said hi. It's all right. It's also short-sighted, though, isn't it? It's short-sighted. It shows that Peter doesn't have a clue what Jesus' mission really is. He still doesn't get it. He treats Jesus as though he's equal to Moses and Elijah at one level when he is not. Jesus has no peers. But before Peter can go any further and say anything else, even dumber, God the Father interrupts him. It's as if he says, that's enough nonsense from you, Peter. Let me speak for a moment. In verse 34, we're told that as he was saying these things, Peter, his mouth is still moving. Ignorance is still coming out. A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. In spite of what they'd already seen on top of that mountain, when they saw this cloud begin to descend, these men knew immediately what they were seeing. This wasn't just a weird weather pattern. This was the glory of God Almighty descending upon them. 
They knew that, and it was unmistakable. All throughout the Old Testament, God appeared regularly showing himself this way in a cloud. Exodus 13, 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them. In Exodus 16, 10, as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. Exodus 19.9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. Exodus 35.5, uh, 34.5, on Mount Sinai, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Peter, James, and John knew those texts. And when they saw the cloud coming, they knew this is the glory of God Almighty descending upon us. And rightfully so, they're scared out of their minds. They're scared out of their minds. For these men, it's been an emotional roller coaster this whole trip, going up the mountain, bebopping like it's an ordinary day. One minute they're, they're exhilarated at, and, and somewhat afraid at seeing Jesus' unveiled glory, and now they're absolutely terrified. You can imagine just what this must have been like for them to experience this mixture of fear and exhilaration. I can't imagine it. I know what it's like to have a, a mixture of fear and exhilaration. I, I chaperoned a seventh and eighth grade trip a couple weeks ago. And we went to a, a amusement park and rode roller coasters, one particular called Fury 325. It's called Fury 325 because it's 325 feet above, up. And that's the drop, the first one. And my son coerced me into going on that thing. Not wanting to be perceived as a wimp. In spite of my great fear, I went on this thing. And as we're creeping up this 325-foot mountain, I'm thinking the whole time, what am I doing? I'm going to die on this thing. But then, you know, it's like you crest the hump, and it's like, well, you know, I can't jump out. So there's only one way down, you know, off, and it's down. And that, that sucker turned down straight 325 feet, and it's like life flashes before your eyes. But somewhere between the flash of life and the bottom, you go, hey, this isn't all that bad. This is actually pretty fun. I think I'm going to survive this. There's that fear and there's that exhilaration all at the same time. I did survive. I didn't ride it again, but I did survive. And these poor men, they're bored to death praying one minute. They're seeing the glory of Christ revealed and this, this brilliant radiance coming from him. And the next minute, the glory of God the Father is descending and they are fall on their faces, abject terror. He shows up and he speaks. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter, you'd be wise to shut your mouth and open your ears. You don't know who you're speaking to. This is my son. You listen to him. He's the chosen one. By the way, that's a flashback to Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. We don't have time this morning, but Isaiah connects this phrase, my chosen, to the suffering servant in chapter 53. And he shows us that what God the Father is speaking of when he identifies Jesus as the chosen one is the same thing that Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about, speaking about the plan of redemption he was about to accomplish at the cross and the grave and the resurrection. What's the point? 
The point is this, not only is Jesus eternal God, not only is he the promised one of the Old Testament, greater than Moses and Elijah, he is also the son of God, the chosen son of God, the suffering servant from Isaiah. Jesus is not just a man. He's the eternal God of all gods in all of his brilliant radiance. He is the one to whom the whole Bible speaks and points. He is the chosen one of the Father come to redeem. He has no peers. He has no real competition. And because all of that is true, there's only one rational response to him. Listen to him. Listen to what he says. There's nobody else worth listening to above him. What he says is true. What he says is right. And what he says is what will be. To listen to anyone else, to follow anyone else, is to be an absolute fool. Because there is none like him. When we hear him speak, we hear God himself speak. Who else do you need to hear? Who else will you follow above God? Who else can say anything intelligent that's more intelligent than what God has to say? Who else can say to you or to me anything that's more right than what God says is right? Who can tell you and me more about our own lives and our own experience and what's to come beyond this life than God who has spoken? Who can tell us more? Nobody can. We don't need to hear more. We need to listen to what we've heard and to obey it and to submit to it. That was the message for the apostles, and that's the message for us. My friends, I think you and I think of Jesus far too small. And I pray that in some small way, going through this text this morning has enlarged your vision of who he really is. And that by seeing that, the Spirit of God would draw you to listen to him and to obey him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are some in the room who don't know who you are, I'm sure. In any mixed group like this, there's always some. They've heard your name, maybe sang songs, maybe even prayed a prayer or two in their time, but they don't know who you are. I pray that in these moments and through this, your word this morning, you would show them a glimpse of who you are. That they would be awestruck by who you are. And that they would be drawn to you, to listen to you. Particularly in terms of what you said about who they are, sinners in need of redemption. That they would listen to you, particularly in terms of what, it, what they need to do in order to be made right with you, to repent of their sin and submit their lives to you. To trust in you to save them, apart from any works. And that they would do that very thing today. And for your people who've gathered, who know you and love you, committed themselves to you, but have thought too small of you, thought so little of you, and instead of listening, they've been doing their own thing, defying your word, rather than submitting to it. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself in repentance and faith. They would bow before you, the Lord of glory, this morning. Before we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.